listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. The Cardinal Health Counter-Talk podcast in collaboration with Pharmacy Podcast Network is for independent pharmacists to learn about the state of the industry, innovative services and solutions, and the future of pharmacy. Join me, your host, Jason Calori, for conversations with pharmacists, Cardinal Health leaders, and industry experts sharing best practices, discussing industry trends, and showcasing Cardinal Health products and services. You can subscribe to the Cardinal Health Counter-Talk podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hello, everyone. Everyone, and welcome back to the Cardinal Health Counter Talk Podcast. I am your host, Jason Calori, and today we will be talking about a couple of important topics that's on the mind of all pharmacists out there. Uh, one, where, where we are with DIR fee legislation presently and newly introduced legislation centering around provider status. To give everyone insight, we have quite the guest list today. Uh, first, Nathan Constable, Manager, Government Relations here at Cardinal Health. Nathan joined Cardinal Health in November 2018. He monitors and analyzes federal and state legislation and its impact on Cardinal Health. Next up, we have Jerrica Mathis, awesome name, <laughs> Director of Government Relations here at Cardinal Health. She has a wealth of experience and knowledge from her time in government relations, supporting healthcare clients, including global health, nonprofit, patient advocacy, health professional organizations, and I could probably list about a million other things that she has done. Uh, last and certainly not least, we have Doug Hoy, CEO of NCPA, or the National Community Pharmacists Association, which represents the owners of more than 21,000 pharmacy small businesses. Doug is a licensed pharmacist in Oklahoma, Virginia, and Texas, and practiced in community pharmacies, including his own family's pharmacy, before being named CEO of NCPA in 2011. All right, guys. So first and foremost, welcome to the show. How's everybody doing? Doing well. Thank you for having us. Yeah, doing well. Thank you. Yeah, excited to be here. Absolutely. Uh, really, really uh, appreciate you guys uh, sitting down and, and talking talking with me today about some pretty important topics that are on the mind of all pharmacists, as we all know. Um, okay, so DIR fees. Let's let's dive in. Which are essentially fees that PBMs charge against pharmacies after the point of sale, typically months after the pharmacy was initially paid for its services. They are usually charged uh, by PM, PBMs based on quality and performance metrics, such as formulary dispensing adherence and other uh, metrics such as that. DIR fees have been a major source of revenue for PBMs and have increased exponentially over the past several years. So let's dive in here. From a, from a legislative perspective, can you give the listeners some background on what was proposed and where we are presently in seeing this massive loophole, hopefully hopefully starting to get a little bit smaller. So Doug, I'll start with you. Yeah, it's been a checkered pass for pharmacy DIR. So I'll try to do the, the abridged version. I mean, pharmacy DIR has not been around forever. It's only been around seven, eight years, but man, has it come on hard as it's come on. And originally my belief, my strong belief is it was to capture pharmaceutical manufacturer rebates back when part D was passed in, uh, in 2003. So it's sort of morphed into this Frankenstein that it wasn't supposed to be. The PBMs have abused it and it's grown exponentially as all pharmacies know. 
to an unsustainable rate. Um, we had a real close call getting pharmacist DIR through CMS about uh, three and a half, four years ago. Yeah, we had uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services as a champion, a cheerleader. He, he got it pretty far. He got it to the president's desk, but unfortunately, there was not uh, universal agreement in the White House, and it died there. Um, so here we are, 2022, and uh, you know, encore performance, except we think it's got a really strong chance of um, getting through that the president won't uh, uh, let it die this time. CMS has a proposed rule that came out earlier in the year. Uh, comments have been submitted for this proposed rule. This proposed rule would require all price concessions at the point of sale. So does that mean that reimbursement gets back to where it was 20 years ago? No, unfortunately it doesn't. But it does mean that PBMs would be forced to come out into the daylight. And so price concessions would be in daylight. Uh, you have predictability and transparency on the DIRs at the point of sale is, is what we want um, from the proposed rules. Yeah, I, I'm curious to get Jerrica's perspective and Nathan's from a uh, government relations standpoint. Um, you know, Doug had, Doug had alluded to a bill, you know, getting pretty close to being passed. In, in your experience, you know, what, what do you think were some of the challenges that held that up? You know, what's, what's interesting about this issue is, as Doug has mentioned, it actually has bipartisan uh, support, but I think the approach and strategy to, to getting at the heart of it is what makes this issue break down at the end every time. Um, so what we have here with the proposed rule that CMS has issued, I think is is the best bang for the buck, if, if that's a good term to, to use here. The current CMS administrator, has has reached out to members of Congress at the end of last year to kind of foreshadow this proposed rule. And then it, as, as Doug already mentioned, it came out in January. Um, and I think that the administration will, will take into account the, the feedback and numerous comments that were submitted over the, the time period that the public was allowed to, to comment. And hopefully we will see a, a final rule issued here um, over the next few months, uh, although we don't, that timeline is not guaranteed um, to see what CMS is, is thinking. Um, the proposed rule as CMS has written it would take effect on January 1st of 2023, which means that you know, Plan D sponsors would have to take account for this um, in the bids that they submit for their next uh, plan year of 2023, which obviously you know, CMS would hopefully want to give them enough time to to make those changes but i think that i think that for the first time after many years of starts and stops we'll start to see some progress here interesting what about you what about from your end nathan what are you what are you seeing out there uh about this newly introduced legislation uh well uh yeah just uh, a point of clarification this was actually it's it's a proposed rule so a piece of its regulation um outside of there there have been bills introduced in the past um but this this is you know the administration issuing a proposed rule on it so um you know right it as doug said it went through the, the public comment phase where ncpa cardinal health mm -hmm. uh and others had, had weighed in um and yeah, I like Doug, like like Jerrica, definitely hopeful um, that it does you know cross that finish line. It does get finalized. Um, you know, I think that there were some, and it'll be interesting to see what what it looks like uh, when it is finalized. If any, um, you know, suggestions or any of the comments are, are taken into that that final rule. You know, I think there were. 
there were some some items that that we had pointed out as cardinal health that I know NCPA did as well, um, just regarding um, you know having that uh, that negotiated price reflected um, you know throughout the entire Part D. Um, uh, benefit phase. So um, I think as it's as it's written, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doug or Jerrica, that I believe that kind of goes away um, through the coverage gap um, and then picks back up. So so having that um, you know kind of in in place throughout the entire Part D benefit is is um, something that we would like to see and, and others would like to see, uh, as well as um, you know one thing that that always comes up is the the standardized uh, quality metrics, um, which which were not in the um, you know, in the proposed rule, and it is something that I know the pharmacy community has been asking for for a while, because you know, trying to you know meet certain quality metrics, um, you know, to to get your full reimbursement, but not having that um, that's that sense of standardized quality metrics across um, the, the the industry is um, something that you know I don't know if we'll see it in the the final rule or if it is something that um, you know, this gets back to the legislative side of things. If it's something that that may need to be uh, pushed from a legislative perspective, but um, that, yeah, that's that, that something was, we're yeah, watching. Yeah, that was going to be my next question because right yeah. now, you know, your pharmacy could get penalized based on, you know, other pharmacies within your PSAO, you know, not being up to par, and it's, you know, obviously completely unfair. You know, you get penalized for doing all the right things if everyone in your network is not. Um, do you? I mean, Doug, is there, do we see a movement in the, in the changing of the language or the rule to, to help this at all, to, to, uh, you know, to, to take on more of a standardized, uh, I guess, metric, metric uh, measurement for the pharmacies out there? Yeah, Jason, so Nathan mentioned it's, it's not in the proposed rule. It's certainly in all of our comments that the standardized quality metrics are essential. You know, because we do need price concessions at point of sale. We need pharmacy DIR to stop. And so we need true quality measures. And I know, you know, I know our membership that they would be more than happy to put, you know, part of the reimbursement on the line based on the quality of services they provide relative to their peers. But they're not given a chance to do that. And so this proposed rule, if it uh, is, is finalized and for us, we would want to finalize with some, some tweaks. The proposed rule as it came out has several major imperfections. So we would need some uh, changes. I, I think we're, we're Cardinal Health and others in the industry were on the same page there. So I think the quality metric piece is not going to be solved with a final rule, but it is a step. There are some steps going forward in the right direction. Um, we think CMS has a lot of latitude to be able to do more but they've just not done it. And so that's where we get, you know, continuing to reach out to CMS, continuing to reach out to our congressional champions to encourage them to do more um, with the quality metrics. But that's, that's so important to have those quality metrics in place and, and to truly be paid for quality versus whatever the PBM games, you know, that they invent that day. Yeah, they like, they like to sell it as, like you said, as a quality of care when that's not, that's like you said, it masquerades say a different form of just, you know, trying to squeeze, you know, the pharmacist. Uh, you know, I, I always found it fascinating how, DIR, how DIR fees work because you're basically penalizing the pharmacy for a patient that you really have no control of. You can, you can do all you can to help them be it, stay adherent and, and stay healthy, stay out of the hospital. But, you know, once they leave your pharmacy, 
it's, you know, it's on them to do the right thing. And if they don't stay adherent, the fact that the provider gets penalized is just completely backwards. Um, uh, what, what are you guys seeing as far or hearing as far as a, a, what are the prospects, I guess, for this rule you think passing and, uh, Jarek, I'll start with you. I, I think the prospects are good here. Um, I'd, I'd say for timing, we may see something um, uh, around the summertime, but that's no guarantee. That is literally me speculating based on the administration wanting to time out how much time plans would have to um, prepare and implement these changes coming into uh, a new calendar year, but would love to hear from, from others on their thoughts. In, in my experience, um, uh, there is rarely sort of a quote unquote heads up on when these uh, bills are, are, are uh, when, the, when these these regulations are going to be finalized. Uh, I know in uh, this role and previous roles I've had stalking uh, the federal register for any news as, as glamorous <laughs> as that can be on a daily basis. Uh, but sometimes you get an indication of that and, and sometimes you don't. So I'd love to hear from, from yeah, Doug. Usually 430 on a Friday. Um, before like a spring break or something or summer <laughs> yeah. vacation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and, uh, I'll, I guess I'll just jump in since I already did. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've, I was actually pressed on this a, a couple of weeks ago and was forced to put a percentage on when it's, uh, if it would be finalized. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, at the risk of being a flip-flopper, I'll just say, <laughs> I, I think, uh, 85% sure that it will mm -hmm. be finalized here. And I do echo Jerrica's thoughts mm -hmm. on, um, you know, around the timeline, but definitely Doug, uh, you know, welcome your thoughts. Yeah. Similar. I mean, we, we, we think there's a high, high probability it'll be finalized to us. The wild card is what the final rule will look like because it, you know, again, if it came out as the proposed rule was proposed, frankly, we're going to be pretty unhappy and mm -hmm. we're going to be asking for some, some changes. Um, because of, of some of the gaps, Nathan, you mentioned, Jarek, you mentioned some of the gaps in the proposed rule. Um, so we wanted to come out in a, what, you know, sort of like a, you know, a butterfly where it's uh, transformed into something um, mm -hmm. a little more uh, beautiful than what we saw in the proposed rule. As far as the timing, in order to hit those 2023 plan deadlines, we think, and it's a guess, as Jarek said, it's really pull out your crystal ball and, and try to gaze. And as Nathan said, you know, look at, let's see, the Friday before Easter, the Friday before Mother's Day, the Friday before Memorial Day, some, some the least convenient time for, for everyone else is, is a good target time. But we, we guess mid-May, just, just as a guess as to when okay. it could come out in order for plans to be able to hit their deadlines for 2023. It's also possible though they could delay it till a 24 implementation. Um, that's always a possibility as well. And um, of course we don't want that assuming that, you know, they, they take the advice of the industry to make the changes that we've asked for. So do you, do you guys believe, you know, just deep down gut feeling, do you think DIR fees will ever completely go away or there will always be some semblance of them, you know, within, uh, you know, within today's pharmacy landscape? 
I, I, I'd love to be optimistic here, but I think if they take the, if I take, if I think these fees are taken away in the form of DIR, I was joking about this a couple of weeks ago, then they just call them FIR, EIR, GIR. I think they, hmm. there will always be some semblance of them um, in one way or another. Yeah. yeah, Doug, what and, are you, oh, yeah, yeah sorry, no, I was just going to, um, you know, flag that, uh, you know, because of the the safe harbor for vision, I don't know how much the the federal government can do and blanketly like you know eliminating uh, DIR fees. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, but it'll be interesting to see you know the future of it. Like like Doug said, um, you know, they're fairly new, but they've grown. Uh, so and that's unsustainable. I mean, if you think they've doubled twice in the last eight years, I mean, it's an unsustainable rate. So. I think pharmacy DIR, as we know them today, have to change. Otherwise, we're at we're going to get into some silly math where if it continues to double every few years, we're going to be paying. I'm just going to make up a number. You know, a consumer is going to be paying a thousand dollars for a lisinopril prescription and have nine hundred ninety-eight dollars of it clawed back in DIR or some you know just ridiculous number like that. So I do think it'll change. I, I think our best, one of our best hopes is, is to have some kind of, you know, whether it's a, a NADAC plus type of um, payment uh, method and, and, and more states are considering that in Medicaid. And, um, but to do that in Medicare, it would, it would take some, um, I don't know about an overhaul, but it'd be more than a tweak to Medicare. So I think ultimately we're going to have to get into Medicare and and update it. It's a fifth. It's a seven. Uh, sorry, twenty thousand six is when it started. Sixteen year old program. Mm -hmm. it, it could use a tune up. So I I think you know a tune up of Medicare is where we finally get out from under the DIR uh, rock. But I think the quality measures will be even more important um, at that point. Yeah. yeah so and yeah. Sorry. Just as as Doug was saying that you know the the impact on reimbursement, but just the, the impact on, you know, community pharmacies and, you know, the, their, their health, their, you know, the ability of patients, um, you know, to, to go to their, their community pharmacy um, is also kind of hangs in the balance almost. Um, yeah. Some and, of these. I, I, and I read somewhere, and I don't know if this number has probably has went up, but I remember reading that a, a an independent pharmacist or as a pharmacist in general can, can ultimately end up paying anywhere between $25,000 to $300,000 a year in DIR fees. Now, I don't know if that number has gone up, but that is, and even if that number is the same, that's the difference between hiring two more staff members to help run your pharmacy, um, bring in more equipment, more solutions to make, you know, healthcare better for your, for the community. So the DIR fees really have a way of, you know, just, Kind of sucking the life out of uh, out of a business and a hardworking pharmacist in, a, in in that community, which really is what you know makes me kind of uh, ticked off about it, honestly. <laughs> um, but hey, Jason, beside, just, Jason, yeah. I'm sorry, just real quick on that because so yeah. to your point on the the amount, we our survey showed that it's about a hundred thousand dollars for the average pharmacy, like you said, three hundred thousand for larger pharmacies or yeah. who have a, yeah. a lot of Part D patients. Mm -hmm. But using the um, the NCPA Digest, sponsored by Cardinal Health, thank you very much. Um, when you look at the net profitability of the, a pharmacy, pharmacies are paying twice as much in DIR as they earn earn mm -hmm. in net profits. You know, again, based on the the Digest numbers. 
So it's, it's, it is absurd that we're having to, our, our folks are getting clawed back twice as much as they're able to, to make in net profit, um, which is, you know, patently unfair, but that's, that's a whole nother story. So. Well, uh, again, to that point, how have you seen the support for, um, you know, for, for legislation like this and changing the rule. I mean, I know we've been talking about this for years, you know, through RBC fighting the good fight, getting more pharmacists to get involved speaking uh, in one unified voice. Um, what have you guys seen the last several years uh, leading up to uh, the legislation that's happening now? Are more pharmacists getting involved and, uh, and presenting, you know, their, their case, uh, you know, to help save pharmacy? I mean, we, we've seen it increase. We, from a pharmacist standpoint, pharmacy, we've seen it increase as it, as, it, as it becomes, as the number gets bigger, it's more impactful to their business. Mm -hmm. and, and as we do surveys of what's the most important thing to our members, this one tops out. It's like 98% of mm -hmm. our survey respondents year after year. Yep. I think one thing that's grown over the last, say, four or five years, you know, Cardinal Health's been there from the beginning with us on pharmacy DIR, uh, others, you know, a few others in the industry, but you know, one of the things that you know NCPA helped to lead, and I know Cardinal was part of this too, was a letter of support with over 230 organizations saying, you got to do something about pharmacy DIR that went to CMS as mm -hmm. part of the proposed rule. So it's it's definitely crescendoing. And you know, if you go on the hill, we used to have to, you know, members of Congress couldn't spell DIR. Uh, they can today. And, and I'll just add to, to Doug's point, it's actually a good segue. We didn't plan this, but that's actually a good segue to what I was going to say. I think the, mm. the other uptick was getting pharmacists in Congress. Before, about uh, six or seven years ago, I, I can't remember exactly when Representative Buddy Carter was elected, there wasn't a pharmacist in Congress. So I, I also want to give credit to getting additional providers um, elected so they so that you know they can also spell DIR to their own colleagues. And then when constituents and patient advocacy groups and pharmacists and others come in, um, there's that familiarity there. I believe there are two pharmacists in, in Congress now, if I'm not mistaken. So I believe that having that representation from the inside has also bolstered the championing and supports from the outside. Mixed yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'll, I'll agree with Jerrica. And just I, th I think it helped with the, you know, letters uh, from Congress to the administration to finalize the, the DIR uh, proposed rule, um, you know, shortly after the comment period ended. I know that there was an effort, um, you know, uh, among folks on the Hill to, you know, send a letter over to CMS to, to finalize this rule. So, um, you know, um, yeah, information, the, the, the need for this is definitely spread, not only because of the great work of NCPA, but like Jerrica said, um, you know, pharmacists, members of Congress, and, you know, and even down, down to the state level, when I was working on, on state issues, you know, going to talk about, you know, a, a, an entirely different issue, the, you know, members would always bring up DIR, um, because they were hearing it from their constituents, they were hearing it from, you know, lawmakers who are also pharmacists. So, and, you know, that was just within the last, you know, two or three years. So, yeah, that's, that's probably something that a lot of, you know, folks don't think about, you know, bringing in, the, you know, we could always do so much from the outside, you know, trying to scream and yell at the walls and break them down from the outside. But it's a lot easier when we already have people on the inside that understand the challenges and can help communicate that to, uh, to Congress, which is a, which is a big deal. Um, so thanks for all the information there. Let's let's shift a little bit and get into provider status. So 
there's been some newly introduced legislation uh, on provider status. Um, I think the last I read only 37 states about were allowed pharmacists to qualify as medical providers under the rule of uh, Med Part B. Um, now we have some newly introduced legislation. How does it, you know, how does it differ from previous bills? Um, and, and, and how, you know, what, what is the, let's get into how it will help pharmacists even more here a little bit. So I'll let, uh, whoever wants to kick it off. I can in start and then would, would love for others to, to jump in. But similar to DIR, uh, the provider status issue is is not a new issue. Uh, it's It's been an issue for years. You've already covered how how some states, not all states, mm-hmm. about 37 or so states have, have issued this. But, you know, uh, having having something in statute at the, the federal level would cover would cover everybody from a national standpoint. Similarly to DIR legislation, provider status is a bill uh, years ago in my in previous roles before Cardinal Health got almost there to to the end of of one Congress. And then the clock ran out and had to start over again. And here we are four years later. Uh, This is the first time I believe in one or two Congresses that a bill has been introduced. So um, getting getting pharmacists recognized as as providers under Medicare is something that it's been a gap in healthcare for years, particularly in in underserved and rural areas. It's, It's not new that um, in certain parts of the country, a pharmacist is the only provider, or at least the closest provider um, that you see for routine and preventative services. I think what's happened um, here in the past couple of years is that the the COVID nineteen pandemic has has exacerbated uh, or, or continued to handicap access to care, um, and where we get anything done. And pharmacists to their credit, which they've always done, is step up to the plate and continue to provide those services. Um, They were granted additional authorities under the PREP Act. Um, And so what this new bill is intended to do and how it, I think, differs a little bit from the previous bill. So the new bill is is called the Equitable Community Access to Pharmacy Services Act. is to basically cover that that gap in coverage that will happen um, if nothing is done once the the public health emergency ends. Um, And so the the current bill that's out now um, has bipartisan support. Um, There is only a House bill at the moment, and it's only a week old. It's a brand new newbie bill, uh, but has has garnered a lot of support again um, in the Hill and and from external uh, stakeholders, pharmacy communities, patient groups, uh, larger organizations representing patients um, as well. And so I think the the new path forward is to see what progress we can get on this bill uh, before the end of the year. I'll stop there and let anybody else fill in any other details on additional context or, or history going for yeah nathan nathan why don't you provide some background as well before we kick it to doug yeah i mean i think jerica actually kind of um you know mentioned just the the previous history i mean it's been it's been you know a bill that that keeps coming up and you know jerica mentioned kind of how this differs a, a little bit from from previous versions um and yeah i mean i i think we'll see a lot it's a bipartisan bill you know two two members of of both parties uh, are the co-leads on the bill. And, um, you know, I think we'll see a lot of, you know, not only communications efforts, um, uh, you know, during the, during the April recess when they go home, but as they come in, focus on, uh, you know, Congress shifts its attention to possibly drug pricing and stuff like that. We may see, um, you know, th- this included, um, but uh, it's kind of 
wait and see approach right now. But Doug, definitely yeah, welcome welcome your thoughts. Um, you know, if you want to wax historical about some of the, some of these issues as well, <laughs> uh, I love to wax. I love to wax historically. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, I won't wax too much on that other than to say, as Jerrica mentioned, uh, and I don't remember which Congress it was, but over half of Congress was um, in support of this, that had signed on as co-sponsors to this, over half the House of Representatives in the Senate. That, that's probably going back four to six years, but um, as Jerrica said, it, 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 ran out of, um, it ran out of gas before Congress ended, uh, that term of Congress ended. Now we've got about nine months uh, with this bill, it's, it should have some um, wind at its back because of the amazing work that pharmacists have done during the COVID, vaccinating America, over half of COVID vaccinations in the country by pharmacists. Uh, so it should have some, some wind at its back from that. One way to look at this compared to some of the other bills is, and this is not pejorative, this is strategic, is it's sort of a provider light, um, L-I-T-E light, um, and that helps in a, at least a couple of ways. One, one of the big headwinds for this for these bills has been the cost, or at least the score of it. Um, the score is when Congress says, "Okay, this is this is anticipated," or CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, anticipates this is going to cost you know X, in this case, billion dollars over you know ten years. Mm-hmm. That's that's been a a, a, a problem for previous versions. This is a slimmed down version. So it's, it should score at a lower amount. That should be helpful. I don't know where they'll be on this one, but the things in this bill are things pharmacists have been doing the last um, two years, incredibly successfully giving vaccinations and tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it's pretty hard to argue that what pharmacists have been doing for two years has not been successful, which is the argument that would have to be made. So I, I, this is another one we're very optimistic about. And, and even if it's, like I said, slimmed down, just to get you know, the foot in the door, the starting point to be recognized, uh, to be able to build Medicare Part B, that's huge. And this would be a starting point. It would be every, every journey starts with the first step, and this would be the first 10 steps. Um, towards that journey. So very hopeful for this one. Will this, will this extend, uh, or will this extend pharmacists in in more than the states that we have available now to get paid as medical providers under, under this legislation? That's, that's not where this is going quite yet, because you did say it's more of a light uh, L-I-T-E. The states are are mostly Medicaid. They're not federal. So this, uh, I think Jared mentioned, this would be a federal legislation so it hits all 50 states, and it also hits Medicare, whereas the states, uh, unless there's some exception I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, would not be in the Medicare side. It'd be probably more Medicaid. Yeah, that's why I was Medicare. asking. Yeah, that's why I was asking. I, had, I was reading something. I just wanted to clear that up. So that makes that makes sense. Okay, so a federal federal bill. This would be this would be nationwide. Um, and and you said it. I mean, pharmacists have been central care, you know, healthcare heroes in the front line against the spread of COVID nineteen. I mean, throughout the pandemic, pharmacists played a pretty critical role in COVID-19 response in several ways. So really hoping, you know, this could, uh, can, can help change all that, at least uh, a little bit. Um, pharmacists, as we know, have been providing, uh, you know, assess, prescribing, administering biological products. It all varies from state to state, but to have a universal legislation 
legislation to help them get paid for for these services is is huge. And I really hope um, I hope this does get put through uh, as quick as possible. <laughs> Just as you know, a lot of the focus recently has shifted to you know planning for future pandemics. Um, you know this. It you know it seems you know ideal to have this in place instead of having to go back and um, you know issue amendments to you know prep act and all of that um, in order for pharmacists to get um, you know reimbursed for their services. So having this already in place, you know, God forbid another pandemic happens. Um, I think it's you know it's very important on that level as well as allowing. You know, pharmacists to practice at the top of their license and being re okay. and be reimbursed for it. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead, Jerica. Good and and just to, I was just going to plug into your last point, Jason, about how historic it would be to to finally get this this bill across the the finish line. So we're we're under the the, the timeline of of Congress now uh, to see what happens between now and the end of the year. But but hopeful that this is uh, this is maybe the the last Congress that we work on this particular bill instead of having to start all over again at the the top of next year. Uh, so I guess this is the last question here before we finish it out. And again, I want to thank all, all three of you for coming in and giving some great perspective on what's happening uh, in, in Congress right now and within legislation, giving the listeners a real good, you know, overall view of what's what's to come. Uh, and it looks like, you know, we're, we're kind of trending towards a positive direction here. So we hopefully it, it stays that way. Um, what else besides besides maybe. Uh, besides DIR fees, maybe coming to a more of a controlled uh, environment here with uh, with the new rule, how else do you think we can improve the current model for for pharmacy? Is it is it pay for uh, pay for performance for all providers? Is it you know a, a large scale adoption model? Is it just provider status for all? Is there anything else you guys think that that we can do or that can be done to help improve the current model for independent pharmacists in the in the market? I think primary care is something we're seeing the consolidation of primary care throughout the country. And there's several models that are very obvious that they're, they're they want to be able to control primary care. So I think pharmacists being more active in primary care. So the COVID vaccinations provider status certainly go part and parcel with that. And then also to the extent where, you know, whether it's through their PSAO or through CPSN or putting together these networks of pharmacies providing services. I think is is we've been saying it for a long time. It's more important than ever. Really agree with what Doug said. Yeah, same here. I mean, he's he's definitely speaking for for the industry, for his members on that. And you know, he would definitely know um, you know best. So always defer to him on this. Great last word. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate that viewpoint, Doug. Um, real quick, Doug, is there any anything that that you can? Uh, I guess if, if pharmacists do want to get more involved. In uh, you know, in in legislation or becoming more legislatively active, uh, whether it be in Washington D.C. or at a local level or a state level, uh, what what advice do you have to uh, to give them? Yeah, so one to be conscious about it, and and so I, I just finished a book called Atomic Habits and how to build good habits, and it's probably one a book I need to read every year to remind myself how to build good habits and not bad ones, but. With reaching out to a member of Congress is something, it's almost like going to the gym. You, you have to do it on a regular basis to build that muscle. Um, and when you don't do it, it muscle atrophies and the relationship dies and it's gone. So, you know, whether that regimen is once a month, once a quarter, 
you know, reaching out again to your member and dropping a line to your, your senators. Um, that's, that's one way to do it. Obviously, we want people to be a member of NCPA. We'll give you lots of opportunities to send comments to CMS and FTC. And we've been doing that a lot this year. So those are a couple of things. Um, we're going to have an advocacy month coming up in the summer where we're going to be doing pharmacy or encouraging our members to do pharmacy visits, bringing a member of Congress into your pharmacy and showing, showing them the magic that happens behind the counter. That it's not just counting by five, but there's a whole lot more going on back behind that counter. And that really opens their eyes. So uh, those are, you know, a few of the things I would say, but what just almost to make a plan, say, I'm going to do this once a month. I'm going to do this once a quarter and stick to it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, definitely follow up on Doug's point regarding the, the site visits and, um, you know, keeping in touch, just kind of being able to, you know, show show members, not just tell them, but show members through those site visits, you know, what, what you deal with on a daily basis. It kind of, it really helps to click, um, you know, having those relationships with, you know, with that member, with, with their staffers, um, they are very important uh, in, in crafting uh, legislation, providing guidance um, to their bosses. So that is also another, uh, you know, important point to keep in mind. And, and, you know, pharmacists are the experts, um, you know, congressional staffers, some of them that work on health issues have health backgrounds, but not all of them do. So, you know, they are the experts on this issue and it is absolutely their right to reach out to their designated members of Congress and their senators to um, tell their own stories and, and be proactive in inviting them to see what they do on the ground uh, every day. So just echo them uh, being involved. And if they are too busy, which pharmacists are really busy to to maybe write a letter, send a tweet. Every member of Congress um, um, has a as a Twitter account and I believe a Facebook account as well. Some use them better than others, um, but that's also you know one way to reach out. And this the plug about staying in touch on a regular basis. Congressional staffers do turn over a lot, so having that continued relationship with the office, if the person that you had started to get to know transitioned to another office or another job, that you still have that relationship with others in the office to continue that relationship as well. Right. And one more thing, just to, I guess, plug NCPA is their, you know, their, their action center. I'm sorry if I'm getting the, the term wrong, uh, Doug, but make it very easy to, you know, submit comments, submit, um, you know, contact your member of Congress through their advocacy center. So, um, you know, having that tool, the advocacy centers um, are definitely very important, make it very easy for, for members to reach out to their members of Congress. So. Yeah, we, we've brought up uh, the, the, the action center, you know, through NCPA at RBC, uh, you know, when Doug has been on stage talking to the, uh, talking to the collective, uh, group of pharmacists that are there. So, um, what can I say? I mean, I really want to thank Nathan, Jerrica and Doug for this amazing conversation today and, and giving us some great insight as to what's happening, uh, out there in Washington, what to look forward to, uh, how to get more involved, uh, provider status, the the hopefully the uh, a little bit of a, a chink in the armor for DIR fees. I cannot wait to see what happens as we uh, go down the line here. So I want to thank everyone for listening here to the uh, Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast. And for myself, for Jerrica, for uh, Doug and for Nathan, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast. Take care, everybody.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.